0: You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to another installment of City Lights Live, the online edition of the City Lights events calendar. I'm your host, Peter Maravellis, and today we are delighted to welcome back into the house Ayana Mathis, celebrating the publication of her new novel titled The Unsettled. It is brought to us by our friends over at Alfred A. Knopf. A new novel by Ayanna Mathis is always an occasion. We've been following her work with great enthusiasm over the years, and it is a great honor to have her with us here again. Before we begin, as is customary at the outset of each event, I would like to acknowledge we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatish peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer our respects to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Ayanna Mathis is the bestselling author of the novel The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, which was an NPR best book as well as an Oprah book club selection. It has been translated into 16 languages. Her nonfiction has been published in such places as the New York Times, The Atlantic, Grunica and Rolling Stone. Joining her today in conversation is Angela Flournoy. She is the author of The Turner House, which won the VCU Cabell First Novel Prize, as well as being a finalist for the National Book Award amongst other honors. She's a contributing writer at The New York Times Magazine, and her nonfiction has appeared in numerous publications. These include The Nation, The Los Angeles Times, and The New Yorker. I want to remind you, we're going to be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of The Unsettled. We're also going to be featuring a Q&A towards the end, so please do post your questions and comments in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard want to encourage you all also please change to uh, switch to speaker view if you haven't already if that isn't your default just as a clean cut between each speaker so join us now in giving a warm welcome to ayana mathis in conversation with angela florinoy welcome to you both welcome to everyone in the audience thanks for joining us hello 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 hi it's a
1: pleasure to be here hi angela hi
2: so happy to see you yes indeed indeed well <laughs> um, first of all so i would like to, <laughs> um i would like to say congratulations to you um on this beautiful 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 book um and i was hoping that before our conversation got started because i have so many things i'd like to talk to you about if you would do us the honor of reading a little bit of the unsettled I would be very, very happy to. Um, I should also say that Angela is my dear
1: friend, as well as being, and I I, I posted somewhere on some social media, that the best thing about book tours is that you get to talk to all your brilliant friends, which is a really wonderful thing. Oh. Um, OK, so I will read briefly from from two different sections. Um, the the novel has essentially two poles. Uh, one is Philadelphia. It's set in the 1980s. One is Philadelphia. Um, and the other one is a is a fictional sort of dying town called Bonaparte, which is set on a bend in the Alabama River. Um, it's the voices of the novel kind of go very well with the with the places in the novel. So one voice is Duchess, who is a um, retired, formerly itinerant blues singer um who lives still in Bonaparte in this place in Alabama and is kind of trying to preserve the legacy of this town. Um, and hold on to the land, though it faces many, many threats. And then there's her daughter, whose name is Ava, who has left Bonaparte when she was a very young woman and after some wandering around settles in Philadelphia, where she has a son named Toussaint. Um, And those three characters are sort of the main voices in the novel. So the first section I'm going to read is very early on in the book. Um, This is Duchess's voice, and she's she's talking about, she had told us about the grandeur that was Bonaparte, and now she's going to tell us sort of how it is now. There's nobody left here now. Cows, graves, me. There's not but a thousand acres of Bonaparte left between us. Us is Carter Lee and his wife, Juniata, Memma and Nip Prairie, and Irma Linner. Bonaparte was 10,000 acres once upon a time. 10,000 free nigger acres. Hear that. The records are across the river in Bodine at the Pauline County Courthouse. All of us, Carsons, Moores, Bennys, Dukes, Linners, Jameses, Coopers, Billupses, Bells, Peats, La Prairie's, Hunley's, Greens, Camden's, and Richards. All our deeds and property surveys and tax records, alongside the records of the white folks' thieveries, which they like to call bills of sale or sometimes foreclosure, depending on how they do the stealing. There's 9,000 acres lost, if you can stomach the count. Nobody left around here can stand to hear it. You can't blame them. Irma Linner used to have 600 acres all on her own, but her no account crackhead son sold them off piece by piece so they could suck it up a pipe, gamble dice, and then move to Washington, D.C., where, if there's any justice in the universe, they are dead in an alley. You know, I do my best to keep up morale and get us to stick together. But you know, you can lead a donkey right down to the water's edge, but the motherfucker still might kick you in the head. One thing is the same. Carter Lee is still the postmaster, even if he is 194 years old, and it's just him riding geriatric on his moldy motorboat to get the mail from the depot in Bodine across the river. Over there, it's just white folks as far as the eye can see, with a few lost Negroes who ain't had better sense than to come to Bonaparte years ago when they still had the chance. Maybe they gloat now that Bonaparte's a ghost town. Probably. Niggers love a come down. Back in the day, they fold and fold around here. Duchess, they used to say. You ain't gonna have but that one. Aw. Then the kids grew up and went off, and the mamas sat up on their porches in their sackcloth and ashes mooning over pictures of the grown children. I used to say, what'd you expect? Nothing for a young person to do around here, but watch the kudzu grow over the fence. Now we are just a rutted dirt road between two live oaks trailing off into the woods like a whistle in the wind. Adio, Bonaparte. We had a town placard, Bonaparte, Alabama. Negro incorporated town established 1868. Used to be Caro. redid it every few years and kept it staked out on the the road by the oaks. Till a few years ago, the white folks never touched it. They thought it was cursed. White folks ain't scared of nothing as much as they scared of niggers with spells. Progress Corps pulled it up like a weed and threw it face down in the dirt. Me and Carter Lee moved it to the front of the old Bonaparte General store. Yeah, we had a store too. Nothing in there now but the shelves, but we're still proud of what it was. We have our little four family town meetings in there too. This is our church, Carter Lee said one time. Stupid Juniata shushed him up like God was going to strike him. After that, me and Carter Lee repainted the lettering across the front, Bonaparte General. Took us two weeks and our old behinds nearly met our maker, but we did it. Memma and Nip sat in folding chairs and watched us, lazy coloreds. At least they brought lemonade. I'll stop there. And I'm gonna move into another section with another voice. This is her daughter, very different voice. Um, Her daughter's name is Ava, as I said. And when we meet Ava um, in the first half of the book, she's living in a homeless shelter with her son, Toussaint. And she's trying to figure out how to get out of the homeless shelter, as one would. Um, but she's sort of stymied both by her own proclivities, her past, and by a concussion that she receives at the hands of her uh, rather unwieldy ex-husband, whose name is Abemi. And that the, ma- the dissolution of that marriage is what led her to the homeless shelter. Anyway, when we meet her in this excerpt, I'm going to read, she's um, at the library in a phone booth. She's gone there to, uh, remember it's the 80s, so that's the phone booth. Um, So she's gone there to circle want heads. Again, it's the 80s in the paper and kind of make some calls to see if she can get herself a job. But this chapter is called an electrical experience. The other name that will be mentioned is Cass, who is her An ex of hers, who is also the father of her son, who is in Philadelphia somewhere, but she doesn't know where he is. An electrical experience. After Bell Telephone, where Ava had an interview that went badly, after Bell Telephone, Ava decided to take matters into her own hands. She sat in a phone booth at the library on Shelton Avenue calling through the want ads, secretary, clerical clerical assistant, collections agent. The problem was, She didn't have a callback number besides the service desk at Glen Avenue Shelter, where Sherry, the secretary, was supposed to answer the phone discreetly and say, so-and-so isn't available right now. May I take a message? Ava never got any messages. Maybe it was was time she applied to McDonald's. She was thinking about how people are always saying how they'd take any job at all if their back was against the wall. Funny how the McDonald's and the Wawa weren't overrun with all those noble, hard-working folks. There sure were a lot of people with their backs against the wall these days. Outside the phone booth, a row of overhead lights brightened, then popped like a fuse had blown. Ava felt dizzy. Pain whipped across her forehead. She She fainted, maybe. When the worst had passed, she opened her eyes to find she was holding on to the little shelf in the phone booth. Her change spilled all over the floor and the blood beating in her ears. She sat up and took a few deep breaths. Her headaches were like a visitation, like seeing a ghost, which is an electrical experience and hurts like hell, even though people never mention the pain. She probably ought to see a doctor. Where was old Cass with his bag of pills when you needed him? (laughs) Ha ha, you love to push a pill, she said to, to the Cass in her mind. Remember that time when I was at Temple and I had finals and I wasn't going to make it between the studying and the working nights and the going out with you, and you gave me those little white pills? Off she'd gone to her exam two days later, energized. Everything there was to know about toddler language development organized in little files in her brain. No sweat. But a few blocks from the subway, the sidewalk tilted skyward and her heart tried to bang its way right out of her chest. She called Cass during his shift at the Black Panther HQ. I'm having a heart attack, she said. He told her to go to a diner, have a glass of milk and two pieces of buttered toast and wait 10 minutes. Well, she was fit as a fiddle after that, if a little shaky, and an A plus on the final. When she asked him about the pills later, Cass had said, oh, they were just Benny's. Passed your exam though, didn't you? You bastard, she said, you quack. That got him. They lay in Ava's bed laughing so hard their bellies ached. They laughed till they were too worn out for anything but sleep. She woke in the night to Cass kissing her eyelids very softly. So softly that the recollection felt like a dream. He could be sweet like that in the dead of night or when he showed up one winter afternoon with a mink hat because she'd kept getting colds that year. Maybe Ava thought. Magically, ridiculously, Ava thought the Panther Clinic had been reopened and Cass would somehow be there to cure her of this electrocuted feeling she had now. He was somewhere in the city. Ava could feel him wafting toward her like gardenia on a breeze. It was time to go back to Glen Avenue. Ava needed to lie down. She gathered her pencil and newspapers and walked to the bus stop on shaky legs. On the bus, her headache ruptured into darts of white light. I'm on the road to Damascus, she thought. Back at Glen Avenue, Ava made her way to the nurse's office. A handful of people waited in folding chairs in the antiseptic-smelling hallway. The worst of her headache had passed, but Ava's temples throbbed in time with her heartbeat. 30 minutes passed, then an hour. The faces in the chairs changed, but Ava was not called. A couple of girls with babies came and went. A woman dragged along a kid with a nosebleed. "Damn it, Mickey," the woman said. "Damn it." She looked at Ava and said, "They're going to say it's my fault. They'll take your kids in here." She put her hand gently on the back of the boy's bed. "Tilt your head, head. Tilt your head, baby." A steady stream of people entered the office with their infirmities and came out cured or better at least. It must be satisfying to patch people up," Ava thought. Fixing things. It wasn't so hard to fix things. You just needed the right solution. A baby, Ava had come to understand in her concussed state, was not the solution. Of course, the other thing is you have to be able to stomach the solution, or figure out how to stomach it, in the absence of other options. Next, the nurse called at last. Ava stood. No, no, thank you. I'm okay. I think I think I have to call my mother. Is what I have to do, and she was gone down the hallway. The nurse didn't blink an eye. Lots of things the resident said didn't make any sense to her. She was supposed to report erratic behavior, not to mention all the rule breakers hanging around the building when they were supposed to be out looking for work. But honestly, who had the time?
2: Let's stop there. Thank you so much. Um, you just hearing you read just remi- reminded me of how like a. Uh, beautiful, complex and layered book this is, um, which is for me as a reader, it's just really exciting to think about, and as a writer to think about all of the the different parts of it, right? And how it all all really coheres. And um, I also would be remiss not to acknowledge that it took some time, right? to put it all together um i just would love to hear more about your journey to this book um as a place to begin our conversation as a person who is also taking some time on my Mm -hmm. second novel um how did you do it
1: (laughs) (laughs) so it did indeed take
2: some time i mean i guess
1: so it it, we're about 11 years almost from hattie from my first novel the 12 tribes of hattie um and this book i think Probably eight to nine, I guess. Um, so I think a, a few things happened. I think first of all, and Angela, obviously you can relate to this, when you have a first novel that gets really noisy, um, for me, it 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 was it was obviously a blessing, you know, um, that goes without saying. But you know, um, as the old saying goes, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And so, so the the cost for the free lunch, you know, the cost for the lunch was that, um, you know, writing is such a private thing in many ways, and it requires such a it requires such privacy of the mind, I think, also probably of the body too, but certainly of the mind. Um, and and a certain amount of quiet. And that was gone. It was um, I couldn't, you know, I would I would find I must have started this novel 20, 25 times. I mean, I started it a lot of times. And one of the things that would happen is well, the main thing that would happen is that I would get to a certain point. And, you know, in order to be able to continue, you have to be able to make some sorts of assessment, some sort of judgment of the work, some kind of decisions about how to go forward. And mm-hmm. when I was alone in my quote unquote privacy, all I heard was like the New York Times and the Washington Post and Lit Hub and that, And it was just all these voices that had kind of hijacked my own ability to discern anything um, or to hear my own voice even. And so I would get to a point, and then I would kind of be like, "The Washington Post wouldn't like this sentence. Over would never pick a paragraph like that," you know. I and mean? so, so all these sorts of things, right? I'm joking, but also not, you know. Um, you know, there were these things about like, "Oh, it's bad," but also just I didn't know what to do. Like I had lost any kind of compass, so I I couldn't find a way forward. Literally lost direction. And it just took a long time to get any of that back. It took a long time for everything to quiet down. And in some ways, you know, quiet down, it's quiet down because of time, right? Like it's mm-hmm. both, it quiets in your own mind and it literally just quiets down. And then you have to go through the other part where you're like, nobody cares about Mary you Bo, know, <laughs> you know, like your whatever happened to baby Jane phase. And then, you know, and then you can kind of move on. So it was just, um, it was just really mostly a lot of time. Um, And then I guess as that was happening, like voices that were going to be a part of this novel, particularly Duchess, she was kind of the first to come in really loud and clear, um, sort of began to arrive. And there was enough quiet around me and in my own mind for me to hear them a little bit.
2: Um, So from the beginning, you had the idea of this this sort of novel. Mm -hmm. it was just a matter of like figuring out how to actually have the approach to do it okay that's very impressive so there wasn't like a time when it was like okay I have duchess but duchess is going to be doing like it's a different story completely you you always thought it was this relationship between like this mother and daughter and this like in, in many ways this is a it's a book you know, 12 Tribes of Hattie was like, like a, I think, a more kind of straightforward Great Migration story, the way people think mm-hmm. about it. But this is also about um, one of the beautiful things that I think people glossed over in um, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons is that people were going back and forth, right? <laughs> right? Like exactly. Those forays to the north did not always work out, right? Exactly. <laughs> like sometimes you didn't get on a bus, you know, back to the peanut farm, unfortunately, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. or wherever. And um this book seems much more interested in that kind of a, the like the messiness of like that exchange between, you know, going North for this idea of, um, you know, progress, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also the name of this development company in the South that's threatening this small black town. Um, So that was something that you were still interested in and you knew from the beginning that that was something that you wanted to grapple with. I think I did. I
1: mean, the other thing that I knew was, you know, so I'm from Philadelphia and well, I'm sure we'll get to this, but so the Philadelphia sections have a very, there's a very particular kind of group that arises um, that is um, a kind of super political sort of entirely fictional group, but is an amalgam of a lot of things. And I, I imagine we'll talk about that later, so I won't get to that. But I but I did also know really early on that that, that's, that, that group in the North would be Really pivotal and sort of central in the novel and And once I sort of began to figure out where Duchess belonged or like what she was doing, um I, I I also sort of began to understand that 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 those two that places and the groups that sort of represent those places would be in some kind of conversation with each other. um so in a certain way, like the the subject matter. Like the basic kind of ideas of like what is this about, you know, kind of writ large. Once it got quieter, that that became not clear, but you know, it it, it was enough to work on. But all of the sort of like all the plot stuff, and it's a pretty plotty book as it as it turns out. Um
2: All deliciously the plot plotty, stuff. I would say.
1: It's yeah. <laughs> um, and the voices of some of the characters were just elusive and kept running away and I think purposely like I think they had it out for
2: me For, <laughs> for <a while. laughs> um, but anyway that's that's an aside I will say the people the characters you run away from me I find those are the ones that the uh, that readers are like oh I just felt like I knew this person so well and I'm like isn't it hilarious how did they talk to you when I felt like they were never trying to talk to me? <laughs> exactly. It like quite the opposite. They are like, I am not speaking to you. <laughs> right. exactly. yeah. Um. But you end up, you kind of end up focusing on them and like cornering them a little bit more, I guess. So then on mm-hmm. the page, it seems like something is coming through, even though to you, it's like, I can't, can't figure you out. Right. Which um, right. just one of those many in- interesting sort of like transferences that happen when you're writing. Um. So this book is, there's a way because you have this character duchess who seems like she's almost like she just seems like she is a she could be anywhere like the second half of the 20th century like her personality right but this is a pretty it's a pretty modern book right the great majority of it is set in 1985 Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Um, Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, one thing that I really was excited about when I started to just realize we were spending um, dedicated time in the 80s is that when we think about historical fiction and particularly historical fiction around that's like focusing on African-Americans, this is one of those decades that I feel like is not really delved into. Um, I read earlier this year um uh, Gail Jones, the Birdcatcher, which is a new, not new book, right? It was right. like when it first came out in the '80s, it didn't have an, an English-language publisher, so it was only published in Germany. But so it just last year got an English-language publisher. But it had the feeling because I'd never read it before, a feeling like I was reading historical fiction. And actually, I saw in its like Library of Congress list that they mm-hmm. put, it, even though it's not because she wrote it, you know, then. But I'm just interested in your like your approach to writing about this period of time that is not we're not steeped in a bunch of like, uh, it's not where a lot of writers have been looking back to, to to see what's there um, in in the 80s and thinking about like everything that a person brings, a, a black person living in Philadelphia brings into the 80s from the decades prior.
1: Yeah. So um, the, the sort of, the, the, the point of access in a certain way is also that like I'm from Philadelphia and I grew up in Philadelphia in the 80s Um, and the 80s were and, and the 80s were probably that the kind of like tweens into teens or, were some of the most tumultuous point of my life kind of personally and so this book is not about my life but but a lot of things happened in that period that that when I looked back on them as an, old, an older person, not even now, but I think probably through the whole of my adult life, I've been trying to sort of dismantle them. Like, what, what happened there? Right? Like, you know, we were, you know, we had some challenges around, around housing stability. You know, we were poor. We, all this stuff was going on. And the answer to the 80s, in the 80s, the answer to that is, well, it's because you're Black. You know, <laughs> like that was the answer in the 80s, it's because mm-hmm. you're Black. That's why. Um, So there was a lot of time of kind of being like, well, I don't think that's why, you know, <laughs> like I think that maybe, or rather, it is, but not in the way that I was being told that it was, right? Right. <laughs> um, and so, so, the, so I think I've spent a lot of my adult life kind of trying to understand what happened in those years when I was a child. And of course, when you begin that kind of journey, then you get to all sorts of things. You get to, you get to Reagan. You get to, you get to Reaganomics. You get to the many crises that happened in cities all over the place um in the 80s and you get to you get to the AIDS crisis you get to the crack epidemic you get to i mean you get to all of these things that i think are actually in in sort of more modern history kind of set the stage for where we are now very much absolutely and, and i think um so you know one of the things that that i that i started to think about a lot is Bear with me, it's gonna seem like a massive aside, but I promise it isn't, or maybe it is. Um, I, I, you know, I think about the reconstruction a lot, like the period after the Civil War. And um one of the things that, and and that actually sort of comes into play in a certain way in background for the Bonaparte sections, because that town has been there for a long, long, long time. Myth somewhat mythologically, it kind of comes into existence even during the slave years, and then it kind of rides its way all the way through. Um But you know, independent black towns like Bonaparte or ones Bonaparte was kind of modeled on loosely, there are a lot of these places that cropped up during the reconstruction, right? Like it's this amazing period in which there's a whole lot of anti-black violence, like enormously, like there's lynchings, all these things are Mm -hmm. happening. And at the same time, there is this sort of, this 11 year window in which black people are owning businesses, buying land, setting up towns, learning to read, having public office, you know, voting, all this stuff is happening. And then the thing that allowed the reconstruction to happen, which was federal troops occupying the South, 11 years later, it ends. And the window closes. And then it's Plessy versus Ferguson. And then off we go to Jim Crow, etc., etc. right? Like the world of the South as we kind of have known it for many years sort of restarts itself. And in some ways I sort of think of the 80s, as kind of analogous to that post reconstruction period, like the 60s and 70s, there's all these freedom movements, right? There's like, there's all these black liberation movements, there's the women's movement, there's the gay right, you know, and on and on and on, right? And it wasn't perfect, it was tumultuous, it wasn't like everything was fixed, but there's this like window that opens of like hope or like the possibility of something different. And then mm-hmm. it's 1980 and Reagan gets elected. And it's gone. Mm-hmm. And so, and then all the things that sort of happen in the eight, you know, mean Mars, mass incarceration, the super weaponization of police, you know, all these things, which were a little bit happening in the 70s, but they all just come into this kind of massive fruition in the 80s. And it sets the stage for sort of so it sort of set my personal stage when I was a kid in that era. Um, but it also I think sets the stage in many ways for where we are now. Um and, and it's interesting to me, like, as you brought up, like, I, I don't understand, I, I don't know why we don't sort of look at it more in those ways. And I don't know if it's just that it's sort of too new. Although when you think about it, I mean, this is 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years, you know, it's, it's a while back, but.
2: we doesn't see- feel like yeah. it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I know. Right. It doesn't. Right. But we seem to sort of overlook it or we seem to isolate it into like individual crises as opposed to sort of understanding that that era in a whole was sort of setting Mm -hmm. a stage, right? Like we'll think about like, oh, the AIDS epidemic or there was crack and we put them in these little separate baskets, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And as opposed to, I think what was actually happening is that there was an amassing of a certain kind of political and therefore social reality that that sets the stage for kind of for where we are now very, very much. But for some reason we don't think of it that way.
2: Well, you know, I would as a millennial say it's because Gen Xers are too cool to, to... I know we won't talk. About that. They don't want to talk about <laughs> it because you know, you have millennials who were born during that time, like myself, or you know, famously Kendrick Lamar. Like he had a whole album about like being, you know, born in the 80s and like what that's like. And but that's not the same as coming of age in the 80s but um yeah. but you know generational theories aside one thing you point out about the things that were sort of um they felt like they were potent and they, they were like this part of this window of hope in the 70s um is well there's like black liberation which certainly becomes a part of this novel because you have the character cass who is um we can call him a charismatic cult leader right we can call him that. Okay, yeah. I think, I think that, that is totally safe I characterization. Is, all right, um, you know, sometimes writers they're like, "Well, wait a minute, he's," but I'm like, "That is that is what that man is. Uh, <laughs> um, he is, you know, a clearly sort of uh, his ideal, his i i his ideologies were burnished like in in the Black man- Panther Party, or and and he has." A sort of um, a way of bringing people in through like the language of Black liberation, even though it turns out what he has in mind is a lot more sort of self-aggrandizing and weird and, <laughs> and in particular <laughs> to his own stuff, right? Um, and then, but sort of dovetailing with that, you also have, um, you know, the, the womanist movement and like the Black feminist movement and the, like radical um, Black feminist movement in the 70s and, Um, One book that I was thinking about when I was reading your book, because it's just on my desk, it always is on my desk, but is um, Tony K. Bambardo's The Salt Eaters, right? Mm -hmm. Which is sort of all about that, like this this, um, one, these two kinds of ideologies and the ways that they are working together, but then also often at odds, right? Which is like this sort of male centered, very uh, masculine uh, and in many ways patriarchal, sort of like what we think of when we think of the Black liberation movement. and then you have these radical black feminists or just black women, womanists who are um, often put into secondary roles or in supporting roles, right? And these and then when all of these when it feels like the 80s come and all of these things kind of feels like these um, windows for for hope or if they are feeling like liberation is like right here coming close closed down. Like, where does that leave everyone? Um, so I'm just wondering at the books that you were thinking about or just some of the the writers you were thinking about as you kind of grappled with how to make all of this into like very enjoyable, enjoyable, which it is fiction.
1: Mm. Um, Definitely. It's funny you mentioned the salt leaders because uh, definitely that, like I think a mm. lot, I thought a lot about that. And there's, there's a couple of stories in that book that I, that, so I teach and I teach a lot of stories. So those, they're always like kind of in there, you know? um certainly also you know well it's like how to begin um in terms of of even though we don't really think of it in this way but Sula a lot
0: um
1: like Sula enormously actually um what else was I sort of thinking about? Um, In other kinds of ways, for other sorts of reasons, I'm a kind of Louise Erdrich super fan, Plague of Doves in particular. Um, Mm -hmm. I I mean, a super fan in general, but for this book, that book had just a lot of resonance around like land and place as does Sula. I mean, you know, Sula is just, you obviously like a place like the bottom is, do you know what I mean? Like, even yeah. though it, it is a Black place in a larger white place and Bonaparte is a Black place in a Black place, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But still and yet, like very much that kind of, you know, um, other sorts of things like Zora Neale Hurst stuff, like obviously places like Eatonville like come into play because this, you know, Bonaparte is this very particular Black place, but also, um, so th- representations of Black places as they are and say their eyes are watching God, but also just, in Zora Neale Hurston's life, right? Like it's it's no coincidence that this kind of colossal figure comes from this black place, right? That is intentionally sort of founded as such. So, like all of those, I think all of those writers and more. But th- those are I'll stop there, so I don't talk forever. Like those are definitely things that are in my were in my mind as I was thinking about this book.
2: Um, and I wonder one of the things that um. I just, you know, you're my friend from Philly. I have other friends from Philly. And so I'm aware um, and it kind of reminds me just of what I felt like when I was writing about Detroit, which is a Mm -hmm. place that many Detroiters, there's a reason why they have a slogan, Detroit versus everybody, (laughs) which a lot of people have taken, but Detroit's where they made up Uh, (laughs) um, because they feel like their story is never told, you know, properly, right? The burden of feeling like I am touching upon something that people have a collective, not just a memory of, but like a sensitivity about. Mm -hmm. And uh, CAST, as charismatic cult leader, um, does create uh, an organization, if we can call it an organization, that is, um, that ends, that that has some parallels with the MOVE organization, which was, um, well, you can tell us about it and just your thoughts about Rendering that in fiction and like the sensitivities around um, something that people there feel like it still feels fresh to them. Mm-hmm. So uh
1: so I'll start by explaining move for for mm-hmm. a little, you know, for, for folks who might not have heard of it. Forgive me if if many people have already. So move, um, move was um a radical black separatist organization or movement, I guess, um, in Philadelphia that started in the 60s and, and actually is extant, like right now. Um, they still exist. Um, but they were sort of more at the height of their activity in the 60s, very late 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, they were in many ways kind of ahead of their time. You know, they were, you know, they, they sort of took things from others of the Black liberation movements that were active at the time, so they, you know, they believed in in being sort of offensively and defensively armed, like they believed they needed to protect themselves, you know, that sort of thing. They also, you know, they did things like compost, you know, they were vegetarians, they, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sort of before a lot of that was happening or that people knew about it really very much, um, they would tend to sort of move into a neighborhood and they would, they lived in row houses very often and they would kind of make a compound um, in which they, you know, so they had various economic activity, you know, they would sell fruit from grocery store, you know, they did did all kinds of things like that. You know, and they were right about a whole lot of things, as I think Cass is, then they were also wrong about a lot of things um, and they were difficult neighbors, like that and that's that's an important thing to say for, for where I'm sort of about to get to. Um, because they were, um, you know, they would they would set up like water catchment systems in their in the um, row houses where they lived, which would include like rain barrels on a roof. But there would also be like guard towers on these roofs on on the, of the houses with which they lived. And they would sometimes just sort of yell at people <laughs> through bullhorns about how they were, you know, sheep and the system was grinding them down and all these sorts of things. Which of course it was, but you know, people don't really want to hear that from a bullhorn <laughs> when they're trying to like walk home, you know. Um, So in any case, um, they were targeted very much by the Philadelphia police and just by the the sort of systems and powers that be in general in the city in those decades. Um, And they had there were various points in which they would have standoffs with the police, the worst of which and the one which if people are familiar with them, they would know about happened on Mother's Day in 1985. Um, they were in a row house in a in a in a neighborhood of Philadelphia called Cobb's Creek, which incidentally at that time had the highest rate of it was a it was a lower middle class and working class black neighborhood, which had the highest rate of black home ownership in Philadelphia at the time. And so they were, lived in this this row house there. They get in a, a, a basically a 14 hour thereabouts um, armed standoff with the police, in which the police fired 10,000 rounds of bullets into their, into this house. There were 11, 13 people in the house at the time. The standoff siege. Including children, correct? Yes. Yes. Women and children included. The siege continues at the, at its sort of height, the the police and the mayor who was a, um, the mayor at the time was a man named Wilson Good, who was the first elected black mayor in Philadelphia. They're like, what do we do? And so they decide that the thing that they should do is to drop a C4 explosive from a helicopter onto the roof of this house, which they do. And the house, of course, goes up in flames. Two people get out of the house, uh, a woman named Ramona and a little boy named um, Birdie. Uh, Everyone in MOVE took the last name Africa. So it was Ramona Africa and Birdie Africa get out of the house. Birdie Africa, in some ways, is a a little bit of a model for my Toussaint in my book. the other people in the house, 11 people in the house, five of whom who are children, burned to death. And then the fire spreads down the block. So it's just, you know, it's just a conflagration. You have a block of people who are many, many people, something like, um, it's almost 200 families, like are displaced. And the neighborhood is scarred still. There's a little plaque there that they'll just manage to, to put up with a few years ago. Um, the, the, the actual block where this happened was called Osage is named Osage Avenue. And, um, it's a scar. It's an open wound in Philadelphia. It still is. I I don't know if it's ever not going to be. So I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to tell that story exactly. Right. Because I didn't want to, I was like, I don't know that I have a right to try to tell it. Um, also like selfishly, I'm a fiction writer. So I wanted to be able to, I wanted to be able to answer or not answer explore a lot of my questions about why moved happened how it happened what all of the sort of extenuating circumstances and questions were without without being beholden to tell the story and also without disrespecting Ramona Africa is still alive she's the last person in the house who is alive but she is still alive now um without respecting her memories and her experience or the the experiences of the people who died there so um in a way, my group, which is called ARC, headed by Cass, is kind of in conversation with, with what happened in um, to MOVE, but isn't that. And it also, you know, I was interested in a lot of questions like, you know, why why Black freedom is met with outsized state and police, in particular police violence, which is a thing that happens in the Philadelphia sections with ARC, but which is also a thing that it happens at a certain point to Bonaparte in a different way, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I was interested in those questions and I was also, I was also interested in questions about, you know, just sort of regular stuff. Like why can't black people living in a neighborhood just be regular? <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, so as I said, move weren't great neighbors, like the actual move, right? Weren't great neighbors. Um, but that doesn't mean you should kill them. Right. I and it, obviously, but, and it also means that the, the people who live in the neighborhood who have an issue with these neighbors who they don't like, you know, it should be well within your rights to kind of be like, I'm going to talk to my city council person or, or I'm going to call a cop or I'm going to do whatever to sort of complain because people are, it's smelly because they composted and a rat got in my house, whatever. I mean, these are, these are these are normal things that that in a civic society, citizens are able to do. But when these black people do it, 11 people die and they are literally bombed out of their homes. So like what, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of questions there, I guess, is what it, and I was interested
2: in trying to think about those questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and I think that you did like a really wonderful job of thinking about how a community just as you say, like they have the presumption that, you know, they pay their taxes or whatever, that they can like depend on the state or in this in this case, the city Mm -hmm. to be like there are a few people towards the end that are like, yeah, I want them gone by any means necessary. But that is not like the majority sentiment. But the ways that and that is something that, you know, for the book to be 40, I cannot believe almost years, you know, like set 40 years ago that is something that I think is still pretty uh, like relevant today, this idea like you don't have the presumption like of a reasonable response when you bring in the state to sort of like mediate a problem that you have, um, which um, I think that you did, you really handled that delicately in the book. And also, I think in general, when you're when you're dealing with um, as fiction writers, when you're dealing with something that does have an actual historical corollary, the exciting thing is that you don't have to think about exactly what happened, yeah, <laughs> You, what yeah, yeah. your job is, is like, well, how might that have felt? And how can I transmit that Ed, to a reader? Um, and I think that you did a really good job of figuring out like through narrative. And you also have to figure out like how to have interpersonal dramas that are not necessarily in the, you know, the record, the records that we have even if there are documentaries, et cetera, they're not the same as like, what is going on in someone's brain that they never shared, right? (laughs) Right, right. They just notice about another person living in this house with them, et cetera. Um, And I think that is the thing that like fiction can do that um, is really unique and special. Um, But it's also as a writer kind of scary, especially as a writer, you know, with any kind of ties to those, to the communities you write about is like, I'm not trying to say that this is the definitive text, but again, My job is to think about what it felt like, you know. Um, So I had just one more question before we opened it up to everyone, um, to people who have questions. Let me see, are there questions in here? Um, I think you're supposed to put your questions in the chat. Um, So when I get some, then I will um, address them. But until then, I have my own. So. I'm really interested for, on a craft craft level, the way that this book is designed. Um there are periods of long periods of time where Duchess, who is in Alabama, is not in contact with the other characters in the book at all. But it feels like they're kind of like running alongside each other and just how you kind of made that happen.
0: Mm.
1: It was it was one of the other things that took a really long time. I mean, I because because so. Bonaparte, where Duchess lives, um, is both kind of a, it's a a spiritual homeland in many ways. um, And is also, I think we froze for a second. Did I freeze? Okay, no, we're okay. Um, You know, Bonaparte, where Duchess lives, is both a spiritual homeland and an actual place. And it is also the place um i have to be careful here about spoilers it, it is also the place that is sort of very central to the novel let's say and and you know ava comes from there um she won't go back for various reasons much of which have to do with like just sort of intense beef and water under the bridge with her mother and also some very tragic things happened there that she's kind of um as as bonaparte sort of entered into its d- the beginnings of its death throes some really difficult things happened there um, that Ava kind of sort of can't deal with. And then, as I said, she's got all this stuff with her mom going on. And so she she's never going to go back. She doesn't want to go back, um, b- but she sort of does. Right. She's always looking for something that is like Bonaparte, something that is like independent and free and larger than life and a figure that might be sort of like her mother was, who is larger than life. And her stepfather, Caro, who I mentioned in the who got mentioned in the excerpt, who was sort of the a kind of de facto leader of this town. When Ava was young. And so she's always sort of looking for that. And then, of course, her son his, is born in Philadelphia and is never actually um, you know, he's never had a homeland in that sense, right? He's he's sort of born in this kind of drifty sort of way. So in so in many ways, like everyone in the novel is like looking to Bonaparte either as a as a model or as a refuge or as an an actual place that they would like to sort of be in um and so I think even though Duchess and 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 Ava are estranged for most of the novel there there was a lot of there was a lot of tricky work around placement so, because the chapters kind of go it'll be like a bunch of stuff happens in Philadelphia and then you get a Bonaparte section, which is always in Duchess's first person voice, then Philadelphia, then Bonaparte. And so you kind of go back and forth like this. Um, and a lot of it was just was was really kind of there was a lot of rearranging because I wanted it to be so that it, it, it so that these places were sort of talking to each other, even if even if the women themselves were not talking to each other, the women being mother and daughter. Um and so there was a lot of yeah a lot of sort of 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 moving things around or um an imagistic things that might suggest something you know in in many ways it's a book of mirror images i think you know like like arc the group that we have been talking about seems to me to be a kind of um dark mirror of bonaparte like they you know they so there's a lot of imagistic stuff and sometimes things even on the level of plot or event that almost repeat um, and I think that's also how those places, even though the women are not speaking to each other, it's also how the places feel a little bit like they're in conversation with each other because there's there's just, there's a lot of like repetition, which I hope a reader doesn't read as repetition, but is in fact repetition and a lot of like mirror imaging.
2: Hmm. I can see that. I think that that's also, um... I'm just gonna write a note to myself. That's very smart. <laughs> Um, We have a question from uh, Carl S. Um, Fantastic discussion, looking forward to reading the novel. You should read it, it is great. I remember a move in the horror of the police action. Can you say more about how you work with the facts of what happened versus the artistic license you have creating a fictional version of it? How do you make choices between real and imagined details in the book? Mm.
1: It's a very good question. So I should say at the outset that, one of the things that I find that I have to do, um, just for myself as a writer, is that I I have to free myself from facts or from too many facts. Because if I don't, then I start to feel like I'm kind of painting by numbers. Essentially, my imagination will just freeze. And then I start to feel like I get in some kind of weird trap where it's like I'm writing an essay and not writing a piece of fiction. So So in order to make the fiction, I have to necessarily sort of take like the bare scaffolding and then kind of give myself permission to move away from it. Otherwise I I sort of can't make anything like the, my imagination won't work. Um, So that's the first thing. But then the second thing I think is that, as I said, as I, I, I as I was thinking about this, I really, I was pretty clear all along. I was like, I do not want to tell move. Like, I don't, I don't think that's my right. I don't want to step on that kind of territory. I don't want to pour salt in that wound what I want is to ask a bunch of questions about it. And also what I want is to, as Angela was saying a little earlier, like I want to sort of plant whatever that story is inside of people, right? Like I I tend to not work from here up. I work from, I've worked from here up, not from here down. So I wanted to kind of be like, what's it like to live in this sort of situation? What's it like for people with particular set of personalities, a particular set of needs that are that are their own entirely, what is that like to put them in this sort of situation? And then what are the challenges they face from within and without, right? Like, obviously there's the big state violence stuff that we were talking about um, and, and those kinds of constant threats, but other sorts of, of, of concerns when you start thinking about Black utopic communities, which in a certain sense, both Bonaparte and ARC try to be, you know, how do you feed yourself? how do you keep the lights on? How do you educate the kids? Like, you know, what, like, what are you eating? How do you make any money? You know, all these sorts of things. What do you think about money? What is your relationship to the place where you live? You know, where does everyone uh, sleep? What'd you say? Where does everyone sleep? Where does everyone sleep? You know, like all these like very basic things. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I, and, and, and how it would be to set something like that up and what it would be like to navigate that. And so necessarily when you get into those sort of granular questions, and I do think like granularity is kind of the stuff of fiction in many ways, There, there is not necessarily an answer to those questions that I could, at least not in the move histories, that I could necessarily go to and sort of mine and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to transplant, transplant these facts into my fiction. Um, a, that would be sort of thievery, I think, in a way, um, and a little fraudulent. But, but also... It also in some ways, you know, often when we're talking about these kinds of histories, particularly these kinds of black histories, the information isn't even there necessarily, even, even if I wanted it. Um, so I don't know if I if I totally answered your your question, but in 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 terms of my what I felt like I needed to do as an artist, and what I felt like was my right to do or not to do between those two things and and also the set of questions i was interested in exploring between those three things it 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 th- i ended up sort of organically having some some boundaries right and some some limitations about how much i would borrow or how much i would take and then of course you know i was real worried about it i was worried about it for a long time i was like is this too much is it too little mm-hmm. and essentially like you know after a while as you write your way through you begin to at least come up with a set of answers that satisfy you for a time. And then sometimes you still have doubts. Was that too much? Was that too little? I don't know. You know, Um, but you make a bargain with yourself and then at a certain point you got to stick to it. Um,
2: You're welcome. Thank you also. Um, (laughs) And actually our friends at city lights um, have a question that reminds me that I wanted to mention. So you were talking about that, you know, a little over a decade that um you were thinking about this book and thinking about how to approach it but also trying to figure out how to quiet everything else you know the washington post and the new york times of it all um but you were also getting a master's in divinity um <laughs> not a small thing um and i think that dovetails with the, the next question uh would you please elaborate about afro spirituality influences um how it influences your thought and your work so um, I am, and I should say, like,
1: it sounds like I already got my degree in divinity. So I don't want to be a liar. I'm, I'm slowly getting my degree. You got it. You got it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know okay, Yes, yes. I'm, a, I'm a, I have a PhD in in God. Um, <laughs> um, it's an ongoing. It's an ongoing process and a study. Um, religion factors. Enormously, or our thinking about religious ideas factors enormously in this book, Um, and it did in Hattie also to some extent. It just sort of is in the ether of my mind. The kind of I tend to frame questions often through some sort of religious lens. I should clarify: like I don't, I'm not a religious person per se. Um, I grew up very religiously, but I I am no longer. Um, But I believe very deeply in belief. And I believe very deeply in, like, the role of belief in people's lives, the way it shapes them, the way it gives them meaning, the way it, um, for for better and for worse, right? Like, um, the way it sort of rituals, all these sorts of things. Um, In this book, in particular, um, I don't know if it came up in the section that I read. It might have. Um, But the people in Bonaparte very rarely refer to God as God. Like, they don't necessarily use that word. Sometimes they do. But more often they refer to God as the everlasting. and 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 it, it, it is a it is both a resistance on their part and I, I guess then on my part to to gender God. Um, I, I want I didn't want he's and I didn't think that these people would believe in God as He. Also thinking about their history, you know these are people that the long history of Bonaparte in particular, these are people that were brought to this land as enslaved people. Um, you know onto land obviously that was stolen from from Native people in particular Muscogee Choctaw there's a kind of in that area and um Porch Creek Indians um also and so they I think that their belief system is a kind of amalgam as happened between a received Christianity from in my imagination, it's probably the French that brought them because at that point, the US is not the US, right? Like it's territories that are being fought over by various European groups. Um, In my mind, the French might've brought them, maybe the English, but probably the French, that's the name. Um, In any case, people who had a, a very Christian worldview would have mixed with the world views, that, the religious beliefs that they would have brought with them. Would have mixed also with, in as much as Bonaparte became an independent place. There's a lot of native people that are coming in and out. Well, native people that remain. I mean, most of those people were dragged away in the Trail of Tears. So a lot of native people are gone. But there would have been some that remain. And so that their religious system, their religious beliefs, I guess I should say, end up being a kind of amalgam of those few of those kinds of things. So. There isn't a he that's a God. There isn't a sense of God as a, as a being that one could gender, even possibly anyway. It's spirit. And it's also like in the trees and in the grass and in the river. Um, in this sort of strange mythical old woman named Rhea, who kind of is a guardian of this place. You know, so the, it's it's a big mix of 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 a kind of syncretized belief system. Um Which is evidenced in various ways in the book, but but probably most obviously in this name that they have for God, which is the everlasting
2: as opposed to God. Thank you. Um, I think that is our time, but I have one final question for you, which um, is just about the title unsettled Um, the unsettled I think about. um, the you read a part of that of Ava and Toussaint in um, the shelter. And I think about uh, just living in you know the city that I live in, Los Angeles, which has uh, probably an undercount of 70,000 people living um, unsettled or unhoused on the street. And I'm just thinking about the various uh, meanings that you sort of imbued into that word when you were thinking about that title.
1: Mm. Um, so I should say, I have to say, that we were, this book had another working title for years. And and then at a certain point, I was like, that is not the title of this book. So then there was this frenzy. Like everyone was, I was almost done. And it was like, what are we going to call this book? And I was stuck and I couldn't think of anything. And nobody could think that my editor could, nobody, nobody knew. And so I was talking to um, a a wonderful writer. If people don't know her, you should, named Emily Raboteau. Emily is kind of a genius, particularly with titles, but just in general. And so we were texting she knew a lot about the book and we were texting and I was like, I was, uh, blah, 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 blah. and and she was like, hmm, she's like, well, it's, you know, it's like people aren't, you know, she's like, maybe you could play with like settlements and like kind of try and overturn the colonial, you know, implications of a word like that. And I was like, yeah. Anyway, the point is, in like about 10 minutes of texting, Emily titled my book. <laughs> so, um. <laughs> And it, and it's and it exactly right, right? Like people in this book are unsettled on every level, right? Like, as you pointed out, Ava and Toussaint, quite literally so when we meet them, are living in a homeless shelter. Um, in some ways, I think of this book as, as people having different degrees of distance from home and legacy and homeland, both quite literally like a piece of land, but also a sort of homeland in their spirit and of their mind. Um, and so everyone is unsettled. You know, the, the Duchess is the most settled in a way, right? Because she's on Bonaparte. She's on that land and she's trying to preserve it. But it's threatened from all sides. It's threatened by this white development called Progress, this corporation. It's threatened by eminent domain. It's threatened by time. Um, So so she's holding on to it. But the land and the fate of that land is certainly unsettled. Her daughter is another sort of middle degree of unsettled. She had a place, then she leaves the place. And her son is like probably the most unsettled, right? He's the farthest from a sense of home and belonging. Um, and then, of course, Ark, the place that they sort of end up um, aligning themselves with, is a place that attempts to make some kind of settling or settlement. He doesn't do a great job. So, So everyone in the book is sort of looking for on, on both the level of actual physical land, on a political level, also on a level of family and love, is looking for belonging um, and has not found that and is sort of on some kind of journey to attempt to find it or to make it. And so people are unsettled, both in terms of where they are physically and geographically, but also sort of where they are in terms of, of, of family and of belonging um, and of peace, I guess, in a way. And, and I think probably the larger question has to do with Black people in America um, and, and what the, the extent to which we are
2: unsettled. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much. And um, thank you to everyone who's joined us and to City Lights for having us.
1: Yay, thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Angela. I'm clapping for Angela and also oh. for everyone who joined us today. Thank you so much. Um, thank,
2: thank you so much.
0: much. Hi. Well, thanks All to right. you both. I mean, this really was such a pleasure having you grace our virtual halls and congratulations. It's such a powerful, such an amazing new work. Um, and Angela Florno, I thank you for doing the honors. You're such a great interviewer and really, right? really appreciate so it. Fantastic. That. So fantastic. And all of you uh, in the audience, thanks for coming out on your lunch break, or if you're in another time zone, great to see you all. I want to remind everyone we have posted links with which you may purchase books. It's in the chat. Better yet, if you're in the neighborhood, you're in San Francisco, come on down, browse our stacks. We're in uh, Historic North Beach District of San Francisco. We're open seven days a week, and we are coming back to our pre-pandemic hours. We're open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. Also want to point out the City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. We're featuring a special calendar of events that runs through to the end of the year. So please keep an eye on our calendar for that. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So, so long, everyone. Please take care. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.